and welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, part two of our listener Q&A week in IndyCar episode. Did about two hours yesterday, Tuesday. It is mid-afternoon here on a lovely Wednesday. Got a call coming in in about an hour from the new NASCAR champ, Kyle Busch. We're going to talk about his upcoming debut, the Rolex 24 Hours of Daytona, with the AIM Vassar Sullivan Lexus IMSA team. So I figure why not knock out about an hour's worth of your questions, get started on the second half of the show, and I'll hit the pause button when good old Kai Boo, is that his nickname? I don't know. I don't really follow NASCAR, so I apologize, but I think I've seen that somewhere. Kai Boo, Ki Boo, I don't know. The dude who gets cursed at by his truck driver, I think, in the NASCAR truck series. Gander Outdoors, whatever that series is called. Um, yeah, so, and then once we're done with good old Kyle, we'll come back here and finish up the second half of your remaining questions for part two of our Week in IndyCar show, the listener Q&A fun. Thanks, as always, to you for sending these in. I mean, I'm, I will readily admit I did not expect the end of November here to have one of the largest listener Q&A submissions, just period. So, yeah, maybe if IndyCar calms its monkey ass down a little bit and there's less to talk about, maybe these shows will get a little bit shorter. But what I don't want to do is just ignore your questions in the interest of doing a short show. You took the time to send in the questions, so I'm going to try and get to all of them. Before we hit the throttle, going to say thank you, as always, to Cooper Tires. Please check them out. They do good stuff. They make good things. They support this sport seriously. That's pretty amazing, I would say. They're very committed to what they do, even if they're not one of the biggest brand names. Pretty cool people who really want to dig into motorsports and help good folks like me and a number of others to do what they do, to support what we do. Justice Brothers as well, their automotive chemicals, lubricants. It actually extends out into agriculture, heavy-duty equipment, you name it. Stuff that I've used for decades, especially back in the day when I was a full-time race car mechanic. Also, our pals at torontomotorsports.com, they sell a lot of fun things. T-shirts, mugs, stickers, memorabilia. (sighs) If only I had the money to buy stuff from one of my sponsors. And then finally, Bell Racing Helmets USA. Good people. They keep your brain, like, fully intact. Makes me think I should have been wearing one for many years before I started the podcast. Because I remind you on a weekly basis, not everything is connected between my ears. All right. We're going to go here. Actually, well, this is the first question in the line. And it's just a nice little thing from Joshua Ponce. He says, I really don't have anything different to ask than the usual questions that would be presented for this week's Q&A show with the news of Sebastian Bourdais and Dale Coyne Racing parting ways. So I just want to say thank you for all the great and wonderful shows you put on every week for us to enjoy. Wishing you and your wife a happy Thanksgiving. Thanks, Josh. Seriously, that's really cool of you. Going to go to Jeff Greendike. Marshall, please tell me I'm crazy. You're crazy. But after seeing several paid drivers get moved out of their teams for pay drivers, is this concerning for you? Says the way I see it, teams can't find enough sponsorship, even though we keep hearing how IndyCar is doing better and better every year. 
Yeah, you are justified in your concern, Jeff. You could be crazy, but this isn't the thing that makes you crazy. Touched on this in part one of our listener Q&A, so I don't want to drill in too deep, but there is another shade to this to offer. So when we talk about the health of IndyCar, there are some standardized metrics every year that get held up to judge whether it and other series are doing better or worse. TV figure is one. Attendance figure is another. Car count is the third. Those tend to be the three general items. We know that IndyCar is up a bit on its year, I guess full year, full season, year to year. TV, having moved everything to NBC Sports, so that would certainly give the impression that things are on the up. And that's a good thing, obviously. Bigger TV ratings, better. Helps all the teams when they're out pursuing sponsorship dollars. They can say, more eyeballs are watching the thing we're telling you to pay us to be involved in to promote your thing. If you look at attendance figures, I believe year to year, things are up as well. I can't tell you what that number is. I've just heard from some pretty good folks who would know that there is an improvement there as well so that's a good thing more people coming out to watch that's great and then the car count side is pretty good this past year wasn't great but it was not bad we were at 20 plus consistently right and apologize if you hear the clicking in the background i need to check yeah we had 20-ish, 21 or so cars almost everywhere. Uh, Obviously, there were some part-time entries that did a little more than we thought they might. There are some others that we thought were going to be full-time where they all of a sudden kind of changed. So anyways, you know, although we started out uh, at the opening round at St. Petersburg with, what, 24 cars or so, and we ended up at Laguna, Monterey for the season finale with 24 You know, there were some events where we had 22. Uh, There are some others where we might have had, actually, what, 21? Uh, I believe Toronto might have been. No, I think we had 22 there as well. Regardless, 22-ish cars full-time. And at some rounds, that expanded a little bit. We'd love to see that up in the 24, 25, 26 range. So not bad, just not overwhelming. Where this is an important thing to understand, and you've you've spotted it perfectly, Jeff. Things being up in terms of numbers here, numbers there, numbers there, that's good for IndyCar. That does not necessarily translate in any tangible way to teams prospering to a higher degree. The first part, the TV rating, short. That is something that teams can use to ask their existing sponsor for more dollars or used to offer a better message while courting new sponsors. But that doesn't mean anything in terms of, oh, more people watched, Nielsen ratings went up, therefore there's TV revenue to share. There's no revenue sharing here. I don't know if there's much revenue on the TV side. Regardless, this is something that despite it being a yay, thumbs up, makes us feel good, it makes our heart warm. Car count, if it's good, makes our heart warm. Same with attendance figure. None of those things make Hunkos Racing more likely to do a full season. Or AJ Foyt Racing is no richer. Or Carlin. 
or Dale Coyne or Michael Andretti's team. This is not something that translates directly into automatic sponsorship improvements. You hope that it will, but we're not talking about, oh, so I gave you a million last year. Well, based on everything you just told me on the metrics for 2019, let's make it two. We're more likely talking a bump to 1.1, 1.2 from one. So again, the feel-good unfortunately is not connected to the and we got a bank got to back the truck up to the bank because it is just squatting down from all the weight of all that money that's come pouring in because of these improvements so that that's the reality right now this is all part of the we have faith without knowing actually it's a little biblical faith without seeing we have faith that Roger Penske <laughs> is going to lead us to the promised land. We don't exactly know how, but we have faith. And we hope to have answers to that soon, Jeff. We're going to stick with Jeff's. And for those of you who don't know, and this means nothing, my middle name is Jeff. It's Jefferson. But for the first about 18 years of my life, I was only known as Jeff. And then eh, it might have been a little longer than that. I decided that Marshall's in honor of my father and my grandfather. Uh, I should wear their name. So anyways, thanks to uh, Jeff Greendike and now Jeff Barack, who sent in asking, within the last 12 months, I've heard Ford would never come back to IndyCar racing. Then in your recent conversation with Robin Miller, about who is most likely to be the third manufacturer, the immediate answer was the Blue Oval, which you agreed with. Slam dunk. Next question. What is the past history that offended Ford and what changed to make it so obvious they are the choice? I don't know about the offending item, Jeff. That is a bit of a mystery. We just know that by the very harsh reaction by the Ford family to the notion of getting involved with IndyCar when that question was last asked and answered in print, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, whatever it was, it was a very harsh reaction. So that just told us that, oh, something not happy went down for sure. As for what makes him the obvious next choice, well, it's the hybrid angle. That is something that we know Ford has probably been the loudest and most vocal proponent for in their racing activities. NASCAR, to get into IMSA's DPI formula in 2022, which will have a hybrid component, uh, electrification, and then IndyCar the same year. We know that this is a big box, they say, that must be ticked for them to play would say that with Roger's connection to Ford, representing them in the NASCAR side, and also the fact that we have broken the line, without knowing, Jeff, obviously, if it was a Holman-George thing that has pissed off the Ford family so much about IndyCar, not sure. But we do know that there is a clean sheet, started fresh with Roger owning and being in charge of IndyCar and Indianapolis Motor Speedway, plus having the deep ties delivering championship as well and success for Ford in NASCAR. And that IndyCar says it is headed to hybridization, electrification, smaller degree, right? We're only talking about a 50 horsepower bump, but still electrification nonetheless added to an internal combustion engine. Ford with its most recent sports car program that just wound down Twin Turbo V6, so IndyCar going Twin Turbo V6 would certainly also seem to fit a lot of things. So 
that's where, at least to me and to Robin, this Penske acquisition and also the preset move towards hybridization, just a lot of things here make perfect sense for something like this to come along. Uh, Don Gregory says, Marshall, how do you see IndyCar's leader circle evolving now that IndyCar is under Penske's ownership? Know that I reference a leader circle here almost once a week on the show. Realize that I also don't stop and explain for those who aren't aware what it is. It is a guaranteed payout by the series to its full-time team entrance. This was concocted mid-2000s, late 2000s, something in there, where the smaller team said, hey, you pay normal prize money, and all the big teams get all of it. And the smaller ones, the rest of us who show up, don't have as much money, we're newer, we're learning, whatever it is, the odds are very slim of us ever finishing towards the front on a regular basis to get a bigger slice of the pie. That's not fair. So we all turn up to put on the show, but we don't like how the deck is stacked against us. IndyCar agreed, said, well, we are going to take a lump sum, divide it up evenly across all the full-time entrants, and here is your roughly $1 million a year that you're going to get in installments, provided you show up for every race. So that is the leader circle system. And its value has gone up a little bit year to year. The goal here, though, under Penske's ownership, is for this number to increase from, you know, we'll see what it ends up being for next year, 1.1 million, 1.2, to something maybe double that. If IndyCar can guarantee, as I forgot to turn off my ringer, if IndyCar can agree to bring its leader circle up to two and a half million, then all of a sudden we have folks that are able to meet their budgets with a much, much higher percentage chance of likelihood, Don. What I don't have and what I don't think anybody has is the answer right now how that would be achieved. Might say, well, isn't Penske a quadrillionaire? Doesn't he just have money to throw at that? Sure. But we also know that's not Roger's style. He doesn't just give things away. He needs a business reason to do that. So that's why I don't think that Penske is going to just start throwing his money or the a greater amount of profits from IMS into the leader circle pot. Could there be a slight bump? Sure. But I think they're going to have to take at least this upcoming season to really think about, really figure out the business side of the sport. Come up with ways to truly improve that. Come up with sponsors, possibly, that are more involved. That would be on carried on every car. Some sort of, all right, well, we've found some folks that want to support the series and you all, and here are their logos, put them on your car. You're going to get a bigger leader circle payout. Has to be something that happens. Because we are getting into, as we just discussed with the, uh, the opening question from Jeff Greendike. We are getting into a bit of a scary phase, Don. We are getting into a phase where, boy, the stories of just how hard it is to find the money to play an IndyCar, that story has not gotten easier from year to year, at least in this decade, with this new formula that came out in 2012. So unless IndyCar finds a way to bring the overall operating budget down for most teams, 
knock that million, maybe million and a half to two off of the budget? The other answer is to dial up the leader circle. We don't have the answer yet on how it will be done, but I think it's really clear. It has to be clear to Roger and his group of managers that this is an area that needs immediate attention. Go to Dave Heisen. says, when I was in the paddock at Phoenix a few years back, I spent some time looking at radiator shutters. Saw some size difference side to side per car and within teams. He says he asked some questions and got some vague explanations. How are they chosen and regulated? Great question, Dave. So Chevy and Honda have different methods of feeding their turbochargers. And I realize you're asking about the shutters, that the radiator blanking, but need to start here on turbos. So if you look at these radiator shapes and profiles with this new 2018 bodywork that came along, Honda has gone one route of feeding air to its turbos by using a rectangular, tall, narrow, rectangular duct in both radiators that are right up against the chassis. So right next, basically the driver's hips. And that's where air is fed to the turbos. If you move outside of that, that space for the air coming into the side pods goes to the radiators to cool the motor down. Chevy, on the other hand, has done something a little bit different where they have their turbo inlet ducting more or less dead center in the side pods and the cooling to the radiators and such basically goes around that but two different places so what that means is there's no real ability to have a single spec of radiator shutters both on the front side on allowing air into the radiator and actually on the back side of the radiator so i'm not sure exactly which one you're referring to but we'll talk about both on the back side of the radiators bolting generally to the back of the radiator now, there's also some shutters, uh, something to regulate how much flows through there as well. But if you're really looking at the blanking that teams apply to the front of the radiators, if it's a cold day, you'll see more. If it's a hot day, you'll see less or none. Those are, call it spec packages for the Chevy teams and then a separate spec package for the Honda team since they do make use of the side pods in different ways to pick and choose from. And only the items in those spec cooling kits uh, are allowed to be used. So there you go. Let's go to Daniel Ferris. Hey, Daniel. This is Marshall more of a scenario than a question. He says, if a new engine manufacturer came in right now and some new teams came with them, they could have a pretty good shot at landing a nice blend of drivers. Hinch. Bourdais, Connor Daly, possibly Tony Kanaan or Elio or Montoya for the 500 probably. Seems like a good stable of drivers who are good with fans and media. So which manufacturer would you like to see? And pick a couple of drivers. Thanks as always for your effort every week and hope that cancer is getting its ass kicked by your wife. Cheers. Thanks, Daniel. I don't know if I have a I would like to see this manufacturer more than others so much if i had to think about it which i that's again a danger my first priority 
would be which manufacturer is going to help promote its involvement in IndyCar, remind folks that it exists, bring international eyeballs to it, just genuinely throw down, hey, we're an IndyCar. We love it. It means a world to us. Let's get those TV commercials rolling. Let's sponsor a couple of races. Let's advertise all over. And I'll just again say genuinely, let's have Racer Magazine do a special edition. Let's hire, name a bunch of other magazines, websites, whatever. Like, let's bring money back into the sport. Let's grow. That's my goal. That's my priority more than anything else. So, would Ferrari coming in, all right? Let's just, let's say Ferrari. Well, it's big name, prestigious, and all that stuff. I don't really put any money behind what they do. They don't have to in many cases because Ferrari is a built-in brand. But again, it's going to appeal to racing fans, but it's not necessarily going to get IndyCar in everyone's tongues from coast to coast as it once was. So it'd be great for those that love Ferrari. Wouldn't necessarily lift IndyCar in that vital area that it lacks and that is bringing its message, its awareness its existence to the coasts out letting the world, you know, the world, North America, I guess blanket North America with its involvement. That's why I would say I really was hoping something with Porsche was going to happen. Big company. Obviously I know that they, by comparison to many other brands are a low volume manufacturer, but they're part of, you know, the VAG group is massive, massive. And there are few brands that do a better job of activating, promoting, loving, spending just the full, full ticket. Few that do things better than Porsche. Plus it's a prestigious brand as well. After that, I'd have to think about some emerging brands, not necessarily ones that are you know truly a day old, a week old, a year old, but just one that ones that are trying to make their name in the industry, get more people to, if not know about them, think of them in a higher regard. That's why Hyundai comes to mind. Hyundai, they're doing some pretty big things, not necessarily you know top level in IMSA yet but they're doing some big things say kia as well while they've dialed back a little bit in recent years on the road racing side it's another brand that just appears to really be spending a lot of money to get folks to buy their products let them know that they have good products to buy so if it's not germany and porsche would say we probably would look to south korea and a couple of its native brands that are more than capable, and at least one of those two is seriously busy right now trying to use racing to get folks to think about its products in a sporting manner. I'm, I'm pretty happy in those two areas. So I know that Hyundai joins IndyCar might not be the one that has everyone salivating compared to, say, a Porsche or even a Ferrari, but I think folks would... I think folks would be talking about IndyCar in ways that they have not for a while 
because I'm confident that a Hyundai or a Kia, again, or a Porsche or some others, would truly put money and creativity and a lot of resources behind their involvement to activate, to get folks to know about it, to care about it, and get plugged in. So that's really where I would hope such a thing would happen. And maybe there are other brands that aren't coming to mind right now, Daniel, that fall into that category. Whoa, they're really good (laughs) at getting people to know and care. And if you could apply that blueprint to IndyCar and their involvement there, that really is going to help. Let's go to Paul Trahan. Says MP, since it's Thanksgiving week, what are some of your favorite Thanksgiving foods that make you gobble till you wobble? Says hashtag me personally. I love my mom's cornbread dressing. Says I ask her every year to make the biggest pot you can so I have leftovers for days. Yeah, so I also love, and I didn't learn this till later in life, that dressing uh, is often the uh, southern expression for stuffing. Um, yeah, that cornbread dressing, man, that sounds really good. Uh, this is one of the f- only maybe two or three times a year where I don't feel guilty about being a fat guy. Because uh, I can kind of eat a lot, and no one looks at me like, dude, what are you doing? Um So my wife and I, for the past couple of years, have tried different things. I believe last year was a soul food Thanksgiving, Um, and it was really good. The turkey every year thing does get a little bit old. So we did make a return to that this year, and yeah, so we're going to throw that stuff in the oven tomorrow. What? Uh, yeah, so stuffing, dressing, that that's, yeah, I can wolf down a lot of that. Um, mac and cheese, it's kind of a universal dish, but it certainly works. Uh, and then, yeah, turkey's good, um, but it needs, it needs a little bit of stank on it, right? It needs some flavor. It needs some something, just some, you know, I don't mean dry as in a lack of juiciness. I mean dry in terms of flavor, like just straight up turkey does nothing for me. It's got to have a little bit of dirt, a little bit of seasoning, a little something. Uh, It needs some shade, needs a little bit of color to it. So I'm not sure what we're going to do, but we're going to do something. So yeah, something in that range. Probably I need, I might need to, See if your mom gets some of that cornbread dressing going, man, because seriously, uh, that sounds phenomenal. Uh, Horatio Frey says, the roast of Uncle Bobby. Did that ever get released? If so, where? And if not, when? No, it's one of my ongoing failures in life, Horatio. Quick answer here. In May, early part of May, while I was in Indy, I think it was between... I don't know when, man, maybe between the Indy GP and the start of practice. I was in the hotel, didn't have a whole lot to do, said, all right, I finally need to make some time to sit down and watch the whole thing and make markers at all the references. So that's a fairly common thing when you're putting together a little film or whatever. So at two minutes and 43 seconds, when Uncle Bobby references this race in 1973, well, need to make a little marker so that I can go and find the photo of the car he's talking about that he drove at that race in 1973. Or when Rick Mir says this or Roger Penske says that, we can find all those assets. Then 
crop them, edit them, do whatever we need, make those ready to then overlay once we start the actual editing and production. So I did that. And I think altogether, I don't know, about an hour and a half of, of watching. And I swear there must have been 100 to 150 assets that jumped out that needed to find. And so I saved all this in the video editing software, right? So I could just pull it up very easily and have the little markers in place. I don't know what happened to it, Horatio. <laughs> I searched and searched and searched, and I swear I saved it. I don't know if my computer crashed. I don't, I don't know what happened. But when I went looking for it, maybe a couple weeks later, uh, I truly could not find it anywhere. So overstating the obvious here, things went a little bit sideways for us on the personal front uh, towards the end of May. And so when it did occur to me to look for it just to make sure I had it, I couldn't find it. And so since then, haven't honestly found the time, made the time where I can go back and go through that whole process again. Uh, so that is on my list to do, though, because I need to get this done. Just need, not want, need. So I can't tell you when it's going to be released, but between now and the end of the year, there's a goal for me to get this asset marking done and then start searching for all the photos uh, that would be needed to overlay so that uh, we can actually kind of sort of get this thing rolling. I'm going to go to Dylan Burgett. Hey, Dylan. Marshall, you've gone on record that SPM did, quote, the least with the most. So something I've been noticing for a while now is very frequent turnover at high levels. Says the whole Lena Gade engineering debacle was astounding. This is suggested to me that the organization as a whole is dysfunctional. I don't see how adding a whole extra layer of management can possibly help this, referring to McLaren. And the horrific handling of Hinch being benched suggests to me that indeed all is not well in the spam kingdom. Do you know if they have had the same kind of turnover rate at lower level positions? Mechanics and truckies coming and going would not make the news but it certainly would speak volumes about the health of the organization. Yeah, I would say that at the the upper level, the departure of Lena was bungled massively. And I would say that the departure of Piers Phillips, who left the team as general manager and then went to work for Bobby Rahal, I believe the same title and or similar. Don't know if I wrote about it. I'm not going to get into it here because I don't have enough sources to make me feel comfortable uh, to say more, but I believe Piers' exit was something that was cast in a bit of a cloud as well. So I would say 2018 in that regard, management, engineering, things being solid, really did not go well. What I haven't seen, and this is the positive, is big turnover on the crew side. Genuinely have not. Not saying there haven't been any changes, but by and large, the faces that I saw there in 2018 were on those cars in 2019. Uh, Billy Vincent, who came there 2018, he's been moved up to a more senior technical managerial role, which is pretty awesome. Taylor Kyle, who was, I think, team manager through 2018, uh, working under peers, he's promoted to general manager. 
among the most well-liked and respected folks you'll find in any team in that role. Also learning, right? He's still a young guy, learning lots of stuff. But I would say that what we have felt in 2019 would be more of a knock-on effect of the setbacks that they encountered in 2018 than ongoing dysfunction in 2019. Overarching thing to throw in here too, Dylan, and it's the absence of Robert Wickens behind the steering wheel, (laughs) right? It's amazing how speed and podiums and I know Robbie didn't win, but do any of us doubt that had he finished the season, he would have either won a race or coming into 2019 captured two or three wins at minimum and vied for a title? There's no doubt in my mind. With the insertion of Robbie Wickens into the equation, we are not talking about the team that did the least with the most. We are talking about a team that went from strength to strength despite managerial change and engineering change on Hinch's car. We should also mention that Blair Pershbacher, who engineered Robbie in 2018, stayed, worked with Marcus Erickson, did well. Marcus being a rookie, learning every track but one for the first time, having never seen an oval before. You know, pretty significant learning curve for him. Wasn't a great year. He admits to making too many mistakes. But nonetheless, we could see how transformational of a player that Robert Wickens was. Obviously, he was a rookie last year, two seasons ago, I should say, learning ovals for the first time as well. New number of the tracks, not all, but a number of the tracks. Regardless, it was just really clear that Robert Wickens was a star among stars, a very different kind of talent who could come in despite knowing very little about the car, some of the tracks, oval racing in particular, and that guy's mental processor is just, it's on another level. So if you couple ridiculous natural driving talent and instincts and amazing feedback and the fact that he would go to you know the Detroit Grand Prix for the first time and just have the place figured out instantly. I mean, this is, again, we can't undersell how much a difference Robbie made, Dylan. And no disrespect to Hinch, but Robbie came in as the unproven, unknown mystery number two driver. I would say by the end of the opening race at St. Pete, which Robbie almost won, there was no doubt who was the number one driver. And there were very few instances. There are a couple, but very few instances where Hinch outperformed Robbie head-to-head through Pocono. And without Robbie there, without his immense talent behind the wheel, his leadership helping on the technical side as well, some of the voids that he left were certainly not filled in 2019. Combine that, you have Hinch, who... Didn't have the best of years. Certainly had some bad luck too, right? But there are too many races where he's a little bit out to lunch. You have Marcus who was learning 
Even at the places where we thought he would go well, he often did not. Just a year where you go, boy, it's a bit of a reset year. But amazing how much of a reset was needed after this one guy just turned the team upside down, made it his, and had SPM looking like road course, street course, little oval, big oval, wherever. That number six Honda driven by Wickens is going to the front. It's amazing how you unplug Robbie from that equation and the team spent the year trying to figure out who they were. Also having to learn the management side. So I wouldn't put it all down to dysfunction by any means. Just a a bit of a ripple effect for sure. Coming out of a somewhat turbulent 2018. Say the McLaren side should be a positive thing. Zach Brown... No-nonsense character, high-expectation guy, would say that Gilles DeFerrin, sporting director, helping on that front also, a lot of experience, should certainly be someone to add a new layer of checks and balances. Right? We have someone who is a champion, two-time kart IndyCar champion, Indy 500 winner, there are certainly some folks within the SPM organization that have come to it that have had significant success in the sport. But this is not, as of yet, a championship-winning organization. I wouldn't say that at every level they know what that's like, what makes a championship-winning team different in how it performs, behaves, thinks, than one that is trying to get there. So a trying-to-get-their team, having an infusion of someone like DeFerrin, frankly, that should do nothing but help them and benefit them in fixing, tweaking, and modifying some of the things that maybe weren't totally on target for becoming a championship-like organization. So that's how I see it. I, I will bet everything I have that we will not be talking about Aero SPM Aero McLaren SP, I apologize, as the team that did the least with the most next year. If they do, if it is, uh, A, I'm going to be even more broke than I am right now. But, uh, boy, this is going to be a crazy offseason because I don't see how anybody uh, is still working there. Uh, let's go to Jake Wynn. It says, new MP podcast listener and childhood IndyCar fan who has rediscovered his love for the sport here. says, I've been diving into the history of the sport uh, and to see what I've missed since the 1990s and early 2000s. Any must-read books, biographies, or memoirs. Gotta have about the sport and drivers and so on. It says, love the podcast and your insights. Well, it's really kind of you, Jake. Seriously. First suggestion, and this is providing you really do want to do a deep dive. Fill that memory bank on what you've missed. Hit eBay or visit... I don't know if torontomotorsports.com has them. You might check and see. Uh, if not, you might head to my friend uh, Paul Zimmerman, the Motorsport Collector. I believe their site is motorsportcollector.com in Chicago. And look to buy some of the annual books, the annual publications from CART. Um, definitely should have most there. And if not there, then on eBay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be selling some here soon. Don't wait for those, though. But... Uh, some of mine 
and you can go and buy full beautiful books shouldn't be too much as well 20 bucks or less that you want to learn about 1993 what happened every single race everything those annuals are just amazing Uh, and they were produced up through i think about 2007 2008 champ car 2007 uh we haven't really seen those on the indycar series side since then but i would head that route um alex zanardi's autobiography is amazing i apologize and i'm forgetting the name of it i used to before we moved had all my racing books out on the bookshelves right now then right now i've got almost nothing and i've actually packed most away into storage um so i could look and say and i apologize that i can't right now but that would be one there's a book or two maybe just one but auto course uh, they did some sort of revised history of the Indy 500 that came out a couple of years ago. Rick Schaefer is one of the authors. I think Donald Davidson might have been part of that as well. Look for that. That's pretty darn amazing. I'm going to have to think about other driver biographies, autobiographies, memoirs that during this era that you're talking about. Um, yeah, so there's some others that aren't necessarily IndyCar, but Tommy Burns' book, Crashed and Burns, amazing. Uh, Perry McCarthy, good friend. His is just, it's the best. Um, yeah, I'll try and think about more, and I apologize that more aren't coming to mind, Jake. That is uh, certainly my bad. Let's go to Clay Williams, who says, have you ever tried to get Donald Davidson on your podcast? When it happens, you have to bring up the old Bob and Tom sketch with David Donaldson. <laughs> I haven't, Clay, and... It's not because I dislike Donald, like him quite a bit, uh, known him for a little while and always enjoy our conversations. But I believe, and I'm assuming here based on what I see him do every night in the media center at IMS during the month of May is some form of talk of gasoline alley radio Q and a show. So if I'm wrong and it's only a month of May thing, then disregard. But, uh, I've kind of assumed that he already does kind of what we do here and have been doing it longer than I've been doing it. So it never really occurred to me to have him come here and do what he already does before I did it. So if I'm wrong, tell me and I'll reach out to Donaldson, Donaldson, David, and see if he has any interest. Let's go to John Woynar and I might be murdering your last name. So I apologize, John. He says with Christmas on the horizon, what is on every IndyCar fans Christmas list? What is the one thing you recommend people get for the IndyCar fan in their lives. Well, I don't want to promote the things that I'm doing because that's a little wacky, right? I've already told you guys about the Miller stuff and the Joe Tonto stuff. So I would say if you really love an IndyCar fan, what do you want to give them? Do you want to give them something to read, something to watch, something to listen to? Wouldn't say there's a ton Maybe I've already promoted too much of that stuff with robertwickensmerch.com and a few other things. We know, obviously, torontomotorsports.com sells tons of things, sells tons of things as I try and tip, not over, trip, tongue, me, face, word, mouth, talk. Bad. Huh. All right. Obvious answer here. How about tickets, man? How about buying folks some tickets to go to a race? I think that would be pretty amazing, right? The kind of fan merchandise, swag, just about every driver has something. 
Uh, we have some great folks, as I mentioned, Toronto Motorsports that support what we do here. Robin Miller has his IndieLegendsT-shirt.com, something like that. I'm not, the name always befuddles me, but there's a lot of cool T-shirts and all those kinds of things you can buy for folks. It'd be great if you did that for all the various people who sell those things. It obviously helps them. But if I'm trying to think about greater good, would say wherever you might live, wherever your friends might live, get those tickets. Get those folks out to a race. Send some tickets. Get them something so that they hopefully think of IndyCar as an action-based item. So for friends that are IndyCar fans, it's an easy one. For those you're trying to convert, maybe you do that as well. Maybe that's something where your neighbor, who I'm sure you probably talk about your fandom of IndyCar, maybe if you can afford it, get a ticket or two for the the couple next door or that apartment you're in, the dude, the woman across the hall, whatever. The folks that maybe aren't already converted to the gospel of IMS and IndyCar. If they've heard you talk about it and they haven't run away, (laughs) maybe do something cool. Say, you know what? Would you come join me? Nothing else. You can tell folks that you got to see Robin Miller and Marshall Pruitt do a really bad job. And I went home and had people to laugh at. So that'd be my suggestion. More people, more energy, more support. I'm sure they're going to have a good time. Uh, They're going to be blown away by the access. If they've been to any other live sporting events, an IndyCar event is a very unique thing. IMSA as well. You're right up close. You get to see the people. You get you. If you ask most teams, many teams will let you behind the barrier, take a look. Not all, but most will. It's pretty cool. They don't let you out on the court when you go to see basketball game, tennis match, etc. <laughs> Something a little different here. So that'd be my suggestion, John. Let's go to Jeremiah Morell. Hey, Jeremiah. It says, do we expect IMSA to have a ratings boost with Bourdais and so many other IndyCar, quote, names in the series now? says there may be more IndyCar wins in IMSA in 2020 than those who are full-time in IndyCar. I don't know. Jeremiah, I've thought about this. IMSA's TV ratings, while good, when they went to, well, they moved to NBC Sports from Fox, while good, still not great by any measure, well below IndyCar, well below would a Sebastian Bourdais going there or an Elio or a Montoya, would those be things that provide a lift on the TV number side? I'd have to say no. I mean, you don't get much bigger than Elio Castroneves in terms of recognition and awareness. Out, you know, If we're not talking about NASCAR, if we're talking in what we do in our little world, Elio is about as big a name as you're going to get. Montoya as well. In and alone, by themselves, didn't really seem to provide a bump and it, no fault of their own, nothing to blame them about. Just didn't seem to happen. And I would say Bourdais, I really don't think he's going to contribute on that front at all. He's already been there. He's been in three to four IMSA races per year for many years now. So I don't think so. IMSA has a bigger question here. Why aren't more people wanting to watch its product? Yeah, 
That's from my other show, The Week in Sports Cars, on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. All right, we're back. That was a fun conversation with Kyle Bush. I'll get that posted early next week. We are, what, about 48 minutes, 49 minutes or so into this episode. It's going by somewhat quickly. That's good. And, hey, you know, since I've just had to step away for a little while, it's about 4.35, 4.36 in the eve, almost evening here, Wednesday night, evening, afternoon, whatever it is in California. It's no longer raining hard. It is a little still gray outside. Sun is heading away. And, you know, the first, I've never done this on the show, but A, I am going to, and B, maybe it'll become a tradition. Uh, while picking up our Thanksgiving dinner that we will cook tomorrow, spend some time just killing time waiting for it to be prepared and brought out in the old beer and wine aisle. So I have cracked open the first ever beer to be consumed while recording a podcast, on mine at least. So never tried it, but it looked good, and I like the name. Uh, this is New Holland Brewery's Dragon's Milk. Uh Bourbon barrel-aged stout. Uh, I have a policy with beer. If I hold it up to a light and can see through it, it ain't for me. I like really dark, crunchy, earthy, just, yeah, very flavorful beer. So let me try a little bit of dragon's milk here. Oh, yes. Uh, that might be my first beer of the year friends by the way not that that means anything if you're a somewhat regular listener whenever i do mention alcohol you've heard me say that really don't drink much at all anymore i might have a couple of beers a year maybe a glass of wine or two not a fan of hard liquor uh in my youth i enjoyed a lot and consumed enough for a lifetime so yeah uh, I pretty much kept that throttle down solidly. And so, yeah, the appeal just hasn't been there. But a couple times a year, and now in particular, ooh, ah, good on you, New Holland Brewery. This has got a little bit of bite. Little, uh, yeah, I like a beer where you know you have consumed something. Not one of these, you know, nothing against our pal Michael Shank, but that Bush Light or whatever it is that he drinks. I mean, that just smell. It just, it's like stale water. Come on, man. This is something where you don't have to buy a six pack. You buy one of these, maybe two, it try, you're good. You're really good. So I like the higher octane rating, not the low octane, high volume options. So, all right. Yeah. This is, this is probably going to happen starting here. Might be a bad precedent. Let's go to uh, Martin Berglund says, all racing is founded by some sort of capitalism. Uh, the term pay driver is frequently used in F1, but not so much in IndyCar, with a proven driver of Sebastian Bourdais' quality now facing a hard time getting a top drive without funding, uh, and a good but unproven Indy, now Indy driver like Marcus Erickson, with good economic backing, securing a top position to drive, do you guys feel like something is fundamentally wrong with the sport or economic foundations is more important than the results in previous seasons? Interesting angle here, Martin. 
don't want to do too much repetition. Paying drivers have been a part of the sport seemingly forever, long before I was born. I don't foresee it changing in my lifetime. This, to me, is its at least worth mentioning that there's just such a fundamental difference with motor racing compared to stick and ball sports that I think this is just its par for the course. Might not like how all these things go down with Hinch or Seb or whomever, Piggott, but keep in mind that if we're talking stick and ball sports, they have enough income being generated through significant TV contracts. Every team gets a slice. Big money, big money. Also, income from just the popularity of their sport being much higher than IndyCar. A lot of people turn up for games, pay money, buy a lot of T-shirts, everything else. I mean, it's just all around. There's a lot of money coming in. You look at some of the teams with payrolls, you know, annual payrolls of $100-plus million. One team paying its players combined more than $100 million per season. And you have to understand the businessmen and businesswomen who own those teams are making profits. (laughs) So it's just a very different thing. And so when I look at, since this is our IndyCar show, when I look at IndyCar, Martin, what comes to mind is this. If the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, hockey, had to work with the financial model that we do find in motor racing in IndyCar, where there's no franchise system, there's no slice or cut of any real income at all, other than this million dollars a year they get for the leader circle, which is you know, one-sixth of what's needed for an annual budget. Uh, knowing that there's no such system and that all of these big stick-and-ball sports would have to then find creative ways to put together a staff, coaches, uh, coordinators, athletic trainers, you know, managers, HR people, communications, the the star players themselves, uh, and so on. They're backups. If the NFL had to do things the way that motor racing teams do, had to use what we're discussing here about the IndyCar business model, independent teams go out and find money. In most cases, in some cases, spend your own money if you just are a big fan, but find someone else to pay for you to participate in the sport that you like and therefore pay the people who have dreams of working on the cars, engineering them, driving them. I mean, I always equate it, Martin, to the sale of Girl Scout cookies. Here's this organization, the Girl Scouts. Pretty amazing. Here's the system they've come up with. The girls selling cookies to people and the profits from those cookie sales. Obviously, kids have to buy them from the Girl Scouts, but then sell them at a profit and use that profit to then be able to go do things, whether it's a trip, camping, whatever it might be. But it's going door to door asking folks if they would like to give money to get something in return to allow the person selling it to do the thing that they really like to do. It's a 
it's not too far removed from that for how we do things in motor racing. And so I would just say, Martin, that while we're not fond of this system, in particular when amazing drivers, good drivers, drivers on the rise are snubbed somehow, I'm just reminded of imagine if the NFL or whatever other stick and ball sport had to use our model. I can guarantee you that the five, the starting five on pick whatever basketball team would have two paying athletes, two people who, yes, they would not get hired by a team to play, but they're good enough, came close enough, they played college ball, didn't get drafted, went and used their degree in business or law or whatever to start a business, become somewhat wealthy, still remaining athletic, still playing ball, to use that money to achieve their dream, what they could not do on merit alone. Sometimes they might have the merit, but fortune does not smile on them. We see that happen in racing all the time. Look at Matty Brabham. There's no reason for him to not be a full-time IndyCar driver. He doesn't have the family money to do it, uh, but regardless, this is someone who isn't in the sport in IndyCar, but should be. But if you look at many of the others, right? look at, don't mean to call him out, this isn't meant to be mean-spirited, but think of Max Chilton. Max Chilton came to IndyCar without having achieved much of anything in Formula One. Very fortunate to have a successful family that was able to help him achieve his goal of continuing his open-wheel career, did so by coming to America, has shown on numerous occasions, not as many as he'd like, but on numerous occasions, this guy can deliver, right? He can be impressive from time to time. But if we're thinking about someone who, on strict merit talent alone, if Max had zero dollars to offer, would any team actually consider hiring him? No. They wouldn't. Of course not. The fact that he's able to bring money, that, and it's a team that his father helps fund, if not funds by and large, that's great for him. That doesn't mean he's a bad person. doesn't mean he's a poor driver. None of these things are, are, are character assassinations. Not at all. But this is a scenario not too far removed from, imagine if your favorite NFL team was having to use the IndyCar business model, the IMSA business model, the NASCAR business model. Well, I can guarantee you, I don't know if it'd be the quarterback necessarily that would be paying to play, but maybe the center, maybe the fullback, maybe a wide receiver, you know, again, someone who was good, played college ball, maybe, I don't know whether they got drafted or not, but had to turn to business, had to, maybe they have family money, whatever it is, and are able to buy their way onto the field. Racing is the only sport I can really think of where talented athletes buy their way into the sport. And the economics are set up to where, if a team cannot find paying sponsors, business A, business B, whatever major corporation that wants to promote their thing, 
Well, then you hope that the team owner has money and loves to spend, Dale Coyne being one of them. And if that doesn't happen, or if it only happens in part, then you have the, well, hey, you're in the sport, you have talent, you've demonstrated you can do this, and you're proficient enough to drive one of these cars, but you're not at the level where Penske, Ganassi, Andretti, and so on are looking to write you a check to perform for them. And in those instances, and this just seems to be a growing trend, well, if you can pay, then we'll let you on the field. So the capitalism angle here, Martin, is perfect. I mean, it's it. It's nothing new. It's been there for a super long time, super long time. We have the other version of this, too. It's less common, probably, than any scenario and I, that's with a driver like Renus VK. He is someone who is very fortunate to have a number of sponsors that want to support him, love him, and are vested in his career and future success. And they have attached themselves to him and have helped him get into IndyCar. I would say, and have mentioned this before, if he was driving for the Andretti Autosport team in Indy Lights rather than the much smaller Hunkos Racing team, I'm willing to flip a coin as to who your 2019 Indy Lights champion would be. The fact that this kid won six races, I think he had seven poles, and fought Oliver Askew to the final event, ended up finishing second. I mean, seriously, this is like... Step up and recognize what this kid was able to do in a smaller, less capable team. Nonetheless, he didn't win that million-dollar advancement prize. So to get into IndyCar, knowing that he has some home-based, some Dutch sponsors that are behind him, we have this odd scenario where here's a kid that who, if the times were different and there were more teams with budgets to offer, with money to spend, would absolutely be chasing him to hire him to drive their car. That's the talent that he has. It's not hidden talent, demonstrated talent. You don't have to look far. You don't have to understand much if you're an IndyCar team owner. You go, oh, he's doing that? He's putting up that kind of fight against Andretti Autosport with the Hunkos team? Wow. No disrespect to Ricardo, but, you know, there's levels to this stuff. Nobody is on the Andretti level. So here's a kid who, on talent alone, merits being hired and paid. Absolute potential to be a future IndyCar champion. But wasn't getting any looks on talent alone. And because he has sponsors who are willing to help make it happen, has gotten to IndyCar through that support. So, again, capitalism for sure, what I hope does not happen. The thing I fear, Martin, is unless we do have some sort of somewhat rapid change to IndyCar's business model and or improvement of the aforementioned leader circle payout to teams, a cut in budgets, unless we have something coming up quickly to ease the annual budget burden on most teams, my concern is the Renus VK story might become the norm. Hey, <laughs> Even if you have crazy talent and you're a young champion and you're the kind of person we would have hired five years ago, now 
champ to get into the series, you got to bring a significant amount of money. I mean, I know Askew, on top of that million dollars, I believe there are some other sponsors that have come with him too. That's the thing that worries me most, where are we heading towards something that is so broken where even the ones who should be the next Scott Dixon, Ryan Hunter, Ray, name all the veterans who are you know within a couple years of aging out. This is my fear, that the ones who should be coming up and, and backfilling their positions are future champions. If they are having to meet that minimum funding level that the ones who don't really ever deserve being considered to be hired have to meet, that's the thing I'm scared of. Let's go to Kyle Ballard. Says, since it is Thanksgiving, who is the biggest turkey in IndyCar? I mean, come on, man. That's the easiest question that I've gotten this week. It's me, right? Uh, I mean, that's pretty easy. Uh, I, I, I believe I hear the church. I believe I hear the entire choir singing amen. Going to go to Steve Garbasiak. Has Formula E added two factory teams this season, Mercedes and Porsche, and IndyCar can't find a third OEM. Oh, man, that dragon smoke is good. It says there are two American teams in Formula E, but no American OEMs there. Does IndyCar have to get more international, attract more European and Asian fans, race outside North America, add a European OEM to survive the lack of sponsors? Now, this still comes back, Steve, to this overriding ambiguity with where the sport is heading. What's it going to be? If we think of the if we think of the dawn of motor racing, it was a new venture for the motor-driven carriage. No longer a horse-drawn carriage, an actual motor... I mean, what? This is amazing, like, outer space Star Trek-type technology at that time. And so the concept of pitting this new insane technology against one another, who builds the best engine-powered carriage, became a real thing. Those who won tended to establish a name and sell their cars. I mean, just... Phenomenal, but that was preceded by just regular horse racing. (laughs) The horses that drew those carriages, that carried people around, that carried goods around, there's just straight-up racing of horses. We're at the place now where there's a real shift coming for what we know the automotive industry to be and racing to be. So I won't waste too much more time on this, but we don't know what 2022's production line is going to look like when you want to go buy your next car. We're not exactly sure what that's going to look like percentage-wise. How much of it is hybrid? How much of it is fully electric? Everything tells us that the hybrid side is going away. We don't know how many hybrids are going to be sold by major manufacturers, even minor manufacturers. But since we don't know, I mean, that's the thing that's making it hard for sure for manufacturers to consider coming into IndyCar. The electric side, that's pretty easy. Everyone knows that's the future. Could there be other things? Of course. But 
buying into an all-electric racing series feels like you are doing the right thing, saving the planet, uh, appealing to younger demographics that you want to buy your car. There's nothing negative about it other than, for those of us who've watched racing for a long time, possibly a lack of excitement and interest in the sport as a real hardcore racing thing. But that's not what they're trying to sell. So I think as long as we're in this in-between phase, Steve, and not knowing exactly where things are going to go, I think IndyCar is going to struggle. The fact that although the number is relatively low, a five-year commitment is what they are telling manufacturers to look for a five-year, $50 million commitment. Could be done for maybe 40, but engine supply, five-year, includes your marketing and just everything. Your total expenditure is going to be five years, 50 million bucks. Could be a little less. So eight to $10 million a year. And you are an engine supplier. You are maybe an event sponsor at a couple of events. You are marketing and promoting your thing. That's what they're saying is all in. It's not a huge number, right? If we consider it costs most IndyCar teams $6 million per entry, but it's still a big enough number with big enough question as to whether IndyCar is the right place to be because of their future rules. Yeah, we hope. Again, we hope that Ford jumps in. We hope that others jump in, but I'm just going to be concerned here, Steve, until... We get a better direction. The auto industry is going to be the one that tells us what they want, what they believe in. It's not IndyCar dictating. It's IndyCar, frankly, having to pick what it thinks the right formula would be to attract manufacturers. Here we are, what, end of November, the 11th month of the year, and we had round about the middle of May when this hybrid formula was announced. I realize that six months isn't a ton of time to sign a new auto manufacturer knowing that their motor, this hybrid thing they've discussed, would not be racing until 2022. We've got two full seasons ahead of us to complete. But it does feel like there's not the kind of momentum we'd hoped for that would lead to a third manufacturer coming in. So it just brings me back to believing the formula might not be the right one. If we see that it feels like, Steve, 47 manufacturers are playing in Formula E, like they, there's just not enough entries. No joke. There's not enough entries. Well, we don't have that problem here. And so... If the series that's doing that cannot keep up with the demand and the one that isn't doing that or is going to take kind of a half measure towards that, not even half to be honest, but go in that direction a little bit a few years from now is struggling to get any more than two. Just tells us, man, that recipe, you might might have to look through it and make some adjustments. Going to go to Snowflakey Leafs. At Marco underscore Gallo 99 says, hey, MP, first ever question. Well, thanks. Says, do you think IndyCar Sportsnet, the people who carry the IndyCar deal in Canada, will fix that crappy TV deal? Because me and my dad have been trying to watch as many races as possible without paying a ridiculous price. So from what I understand, 
The answer in the short term is no. Uh, The deal that was signed was a three-year deal. So we've just completed one. And when IndyCar's new engine formula and possibly a new chassis comes online in 2022, that would be the first window for you to maybe watch IndyCar again where it isn't part of this deal that seems to make no IndyCar fans happy in Canada. So I fear it's going to be the paying a ridiculous price. And I don't know if IndyCar has the leverage to work out some sort of NBC IndyCar gold streaming option that you could do as a workaround. Uh, Yeah, I just don't know. Then you add in the problems, obviously, with Hinch. (laughs) And part of me wonders, a lot of me wonders if IndyCar recognizes how big of a problem it might have on its hands in Canada. If you're one of your most popular drivers, period, but certainly the favorite son of Canada when it comes to IndyCar, and this TV deal that has turned off viewing for many Canadians, those things colliding to start the new season? Big ramifications to be worried about here. Let's go to Vincent Anderson. Hey, Vincent. says, a little bit of a rant and a crazy idea. If diehard Indy 500 fans want automotive innovation at the Speedway, then why are they so against electric vehicles? I'm tired of hearing fans spout off about the great cars of the past that did something different. The 500 saw turbine-powered cars, for goodness sake, says the mindset of a testing ground for road car tech and having an open technical rulebook are dreams that need to die uh, if if the electric car in any form is heresy. Says if you want to get back to the 500 as being a testing ground for auto manufacturers, then here's an idea. Have a spec chassis and maybe motors. Then different, the different thing would be to make batteries in a chain, changeable unit that could be switched out at every pit stop or two. Just a crazy idea. Well, the last one, Vincent, has been floated many, many, many times over the last, I don't know, decade. The battery swap out at the pit stop. And this is something that Don Panos was hoping to do with the, I forget the exact name, green for you chassis or something like that. He was wanting to build and bring to Le Mans. And it seemed like almost everything between the front wheels and the rear wheels, um, except for the little area carved out for the cockpit, was just a big, giant battery cassette that would get pulled out and then the fresh one plugged in during a pit stop. Um, I mean, I think it'd be amazing. I'm with you on this. I really am. Part of me believes that this decades of spec cars has just for those that were used to open tech it's just beaten folks into submission to where they just don't want to hear about different new or crazy or strange then the other thing too man and this is just a straight reality is there's a lot of indycar fans who never knew that stuff who were never there who had no idea have no idea of what it's like to look out and see a renard competing against a lola competing against a Swift, competing against a Penske, and so on and so forth. And five different motors, Goodyear versus Firestone. And this team with a Renard doing something different era-wise at the Michigan 500 than another team with a Renard. And the Lola team over here trying this, and they built that, 
and there's a new such and I mean, that time, while it was amazing, don't discount how many people just don't know that, who weren't there, who didn't see it, didn't feel it, and therefore have no attachment to it. Grew up in the spec era, and I mean, that's just the way it should be. So I hear you. I do find it a little bit silly that those some of those who are saying we need to go back to those days of openness just scream bloody murder at the concept of electric, hybrid, whatever. But I also think there's still a lot of lack of understanding. Uh, the amount of mail book, mail book, that's a new one, mailbag questions Robin has gotten. This is going to be Formula E, right? It's going to be all silent, right? Oh, my God, no. <laughs> It's not. It's not. Um, there just seems to be a real lack of understanding about what this is. So I'm with you, Vincent. Uh, I think of what could be coming with this hybrid power plant with adding a kinetic energy recovery system and the 50-ish horsepower punch it's meant to deliver. I think of it as no different than when IndyCar went from being all naturally aspirated to the addition of superchargers and turbochargers. It fundamentally altered the powertrain technology night and day. And so this addition of forced induction added a lot of power, changed so many things about how motors were built, about their durability, about their everything. Everything was modified when we went from just a standard uh, natural air-breathing four-cylinder Offenhauser to an Offy with a turbo. I mean, wow. I mean, the power went up. Everything went up. Crazy. Well, that's how I think of this. Whether it's a battery-based energy recovery system that captures, that takes kinetic energy through electric motors, sends that to a battery, converts that energy back into something that's deployed through those same electric motors at the wheel or heading to the wheels and putting that power to the ground. I just think of it as a power adder, but just a different, newer, more modern form of it. But I also realize too, Vincent, that my experience in the sport is probably different from any others having been a mechanic and an engineer and, you know, not everybody sitting in the grandstands grasps all these things or gives a fart, and that's perfectly fine. Makes it somewhat understandable for however many folks to say, huh, I don't like it. What? I don't get it. I just want to see good, fun racing. Cool. <laughs> not everybody has to care about what's beneath the bodywork. All right, we're going to go to Christopher Davis. And after Christopher, I've got four questions to go. Christopher says, hey, Marshall, every time someone brings up the possibility of a conflict of interest with Roger Penske buying the series, you rightly point out that Roger would never do anything dirty or underhanded to gain an advantage. Where I do see a potential conflict is simply Penske's point of view as a wealthy team owner. Someone brought up the scenario last week of brakes being open to development. says, I don't think Penske would sneak in that rule on short notice to gain an advantage. But I do worry that opening up more areas of development on the cars will benefit the teams with the most money, 
like Team Penske. Please tell me that I'm wrong and that Penske will do everything he can to level the playing field and encourage new teams to join the series. Awesome points, Christopher. So a little hashtag me personally tale here as I take a sip of my Dragon's Milk by New Holland Breweries. Back when Penske came into the good old Earl, the Indy Racing League, in 2001, they bought Dallara's. That was my last year working in IndyCar on the team, crew, whatever side. was with Sam Schmidt's team, the uh, Schmidt, Sam Schmidt Motorsports, which was run by LP Racing. We had a Dallara as well. I believe we had the same everything. Uh, we were Dallara Oldsmobile, or was that called a Chevy then? I think it was still the Oldsmobile. Dallara Oldsmobile Firestone. I think they were the same. I think they were Dallara Oldsmobile Firestone. Anyways, what I noticed, I think it was at Indy during one of the first practice sessions or something, was noticing whether it was Elio's car or DeFerrin's, not sure who was driving it, but just noticed it going by, sitting on our timing stand. I was a uh, assistant engineer then. Watching their car go by, sitting on the timing stand, paying real close attention to it, noticed that the back of the car, the uh, rear tire ramps, the little pieces there, the, the outer edges, trailing edge of the floor in front of the rear tires, noticed that they had different aero treatment than anyone else. And that was my first thought along your lines here. Huh. Well, this is a new team to the Indy 500 in the IRL era, right? Obviously, Roger had won a million races previous era. But nonetheless, they're back. This is our first time running this Dallara. They've got more money than all of us combined. They've got the best of everybody combined. Huh. I didn't know you I didn't think you could do that. I didn't think you could actually do some new bodywork pieces and raise that question kind of raised holy hell to Brian Barnhart who was the IRL president at the time, I believe. Guy in charge. And whether I think it might have been by email, I don't know, but sent him the somewhat impassioned letter along the lines of exactly what you mentioned here. Hey, I like that I just sent, said I sent him a letter. It was actually by email, but anyways, an email letter. <laughs> That's kind of what we thought of them back in 2001. Uh, sent him an email, rather straightforward, saying, Hey, man, it's great that Penske's here. Realize it's going to up everyone's game. Maybe I just didn't read deeply enough into the rule book, but I'm quite surprised to see the series allow open aero development in this particular section of the car that I mentioned, knowing that basically everything else is kind of sort of spec, right? Uh, I mean, truly, this is meant to be the spec series where it's team against team, not designer against designer, and yet it appears there's an area that nobody looked at, thought about, knew about, or, uh, you know, really, whoa. And... Well, I don't remember the meat of the reply. It basically went something like, I don't know what to tell you, man. It's in the rule book. They read it. 
they did. And if you didn't, well, uh, get some better glasses. While I didn't care for the general response, I understood it. And it was, as it is right now, that is permitted. And a team that has the resources or just, again, folks that are better or reading the rules said, oh, this is an area where we can exploit an advantage and spent time on wind tunnel and trying parts and pieces. And I'm sure found something that improved airflow, reduced drag a bit, yada, yada, yada. And it does come back to the same thing today, right? Your point here. If something is open, it is going to be exploited either first or to a higher degree by the teams that have money and are able to do that than the ones that don't. We spent a lot of time this week talking about team not having enough money to run the driver who they have under contract and having to let that guy go and so on. This is the exact type of team where you go, yeah, absolutely. Dale coin racing would lose out if more things were open. They already lose out to many teams on the damper front. They try and do their best, but they don't have the money to do as much R and D as everyone else to come up with as many good ideas or to buy as many parts buy the shocks that they really want. Maybe they have one or two vendors, but They don't have the budget to go and buy the hot new third one or whatever. It is these kinds of things where the more things that are open in a quote spec series or close to spec series, the more opportunities for the bigger teams to exploit their financial advantage and then use that advantage to exploit on track performance advantage. Just period end of statement. I wish we lived in a time obviously where money was really strong and we could allow teams to do these things and not worry about the smaller teams really getting beaten up because of it. Cause even then while they are, there's always going to be big and small teams, at least it's not such a dire chasm between the two like we have right now. So it is, it is a real concern, but we still come back to the same fact, Christopher, of so everything is spec. Let's just say truly, all you can do is change gear ratios from track to track. You got one set of shocks, you get don't touch anything. Team Penske, Andretti Autosport, Chip Ganassi Racing still win the championship every year. Bigger team, better team. More consistency, better practices, better drivers. The consistency part is huge, right? We have this driver and engineer that have been together for years, or our technical director has been around for years, and we have all of these things that we do that are just like, it's like the Patriots, man. You know, They might have new components in certain places each year, but as long as you got Bill Belichick coaching and Tom Brady throwing the ball, that's going to be hard for other teams to beat, no matter who you rotate in or out. And the fact that they keep coming back year after year after year in whatever their offensive coordinator is, whose name I forget, 
Uh, that guy comes back every year. There's so many people that just return as part of this very imposing football team. That Man, it's, it's hard to beat them because it's the same people coming back every year to do the thing they're successful at. Even if the rules don't change, they're still going to be perennial Super Bowl contenders. It's the same here. Cars could be impounded. The moment they come off track, impounded by the league series and handed back one minute before the next session, no change is made. All the teams can play with them during the session, but nothing more. Guarantee you the big teams are still going to succeed because they have better personnel, better drivers, and their processes have been developed such a high art over many years. And the same people practicing them are still there. There's always going to be a disparity. So I, I totally understand the, the question here about advantage, disadvantage. That's not going away. Roger, I understand, knows that he needs to think in different ways about the sport if he wants it to grow and become more. I don't think he will do anything to make his team less competitive I just believe he's going to work harder to find ways that will allow the other teams to be wealthier and therefore, in theory, have more money to perform better. Let's go to Sad Boys to Men, BBD, ABC. Uh, In last week's The Week in Sports Cars episode, you mentioned two things I thought were very intriguing. One was the development of a more universal engine architecture that could be used across multiple series, And the other was a reduction in the number of races for several series, including IndyCar. My question is, are these things being actively considered by manufacturers or series or the ideas of yours for future security? (laughs) It's all me. It's purely selfish. I don't know if any of these things are being considered. I can say that the relationship between the media and the men and women that run racing series can be pretty cool. I can't speak to other sports because I haven't covered other sports. I do know that like drivers, team owners, and engineers and such, the folks at top racing series are also known to reach out to journalists. I would assume the ones that they respect. Say, hey, what do you think about this? Hey, this conversation, it's off the record. I don't want to see it in print, hear about you and I never spoke. And if I ever hear you mention this, we're never having a conversation again. With all that said, what do you think about this thing? How do you think this is playing out? If we were to make this change, how do you think that would land? Or give us a totally outside perspective on something. Uh, Those things happen, not all the time, but often enough. And I mention this because I know that I was in Jay Fry's ear for a long time, a long time about need to consider doing something hybrid, need to consider doing something more than just internal combustion engine. It's not because I want things to change for the sake of change. It's because I'm seeing what's happening elsewhere in the sport and where Manufacturer support is growing. It's in series where they are not solely internal combustion engine. And for the series that are struggling, 
in terms of manufacturer involvement, it's where they're holding on to this old, we're burning dinosaurs as fuel type deals. So just for the health of IndyCar, you really need to get out of this strict, fast and loud and authentic mindset and that fast, loud, authentic meaning pictures of muscle cars and just horsepower, you know, fuel getting dumped into old ways of making power. Got to realize that electric horsepower is becoming the norm if it isn't already. Seriously, alternative fuels, not just E85, but what else is out there? Just need to start thinking, man, strictly from a business health and survival standpoint. If you're going to tie IndyCar in to five years, seven years of just more pure or burning fuel and nothing else, I'm not confident the series is going to be around. And keep in mind, the original formula they announced was just that. No hybrid whatsoever. And they ended up changing course. I am not claiming they did that because of me. I can guarantee you there are many others saying the same thing. But it's enough folks who care about the sport saying, hey, we're seeing things elsewhere, trying to share them with you. You might want to reconsider a little bit. So I mentioned that because the... What about reducing the number of races? What about looking to IMSA? Maybe even NASCAR. I don't know, but at least IMSA to say, hey, engines in your DPIs, your your top-tier manufacturer prototypes, what do you think for the future? Because we're going in a newish direction, a different direction. wonder if we should be smart and come up with something that allows Chevy slash Cadillac to have a motor that's used in both series. The same thing. Again, one needs to do 24 hours. One needs to do a couple of hours. So built to different specs, but at least the same bones. That sure would make it easier on their budget. Honda slash Acura as well. If, and again, I'm just throwing out names. If Mazda was able to do that, build a motor that legal in IMSA's DPI category and could also be used in IndyCar. I mean, that'd be pretty amazing, right? All of a sudden, you're not having to convince manufacturers to spend $50 million over five years on something that is only good for this one series. I just got to believe that if you're going to the uh, chief financial officer and the chief marketing officer at your automotive brand and saying, hey, we want to do this stuff in racing. You think we could get a little more budget if we did it where we built this thing once or, you know, kind of commissioned the building of this new design and there'd be versions of it that different spec for one series and the other, but more or less, it's kind of sort of the same thing. I gotta believe those CFOs and CMOs would absolutely raise their hand and say, yes, <laughs> that's amazing. Because before we were going to have to spend a ton if we wanted to play in both. Now this one area that's kind of common, it's a huge savings. Plus it gives us flexibility we didn't have before. I just got to believe, man, that that would actually go a long way. And so 
These are the kinds of things that I will throw at a Jay Fry or a Mark Miles. Probably not this side. Mark doesn't really understand the technical side, nor should he. He doesn't have any experience. But, yeah, these are absolutely things that I do and will and will continue to throw at the Jay Fries of the world or those who are in charge at IMSA, wherever it might be, and say, you know, just saying, here's an idea. If you haven't already thought of it, more often than not, they'll come back and go, yeah, idiot, we we, <laughs> we were on that two years ago, <laughs> and it's coming along nicely, but thanks for uh, being last to the party here. But yeah, it's not an uncommon thing for folks in the media side, at least, to say, hey, here's an idea. Sometimes folks don't laugh in our faces when we offer them as well. Let's go to Ben Sports 87. Uh, it says, hey, Marshall. Robin mentioned in his latest article that Sam Schmidt was told to zip it on Hinchcliffe by Arrow before Hinch was dropped. It says, it seems like Arrow and maybe McLaren are really calling the shots at that team. So I'm wondering what Schmidt and Peterson are getting from this arrangement. It says, did they need the money? Which is no doubt nice. But if it's no longer really their team, then how is that better than, say, the old SPM days for them? Love the question here. It is a little bit curious, isn't it? I had heard something similar about when Sam offered some quotes, I believe around the Portland race of, yeah, Hinch is coming back. I have no idea where any of the speculation comes from. I'd heard it was maybe suggested that uh, yeah, please don't say those things in public. I don't know what the truth is on the arrow side from this perspective. I've been told more than once that there are two factions of arrow arrow, Japan, Europe, basically the side that is involved with McLaren on the formula one program. And then the American side of Arrow is what is engaged with Rick Peterson, Sam Schmidt, and now McLaren with Arrow McLaren SP. So although one company, two different houses, two different budgets, different management structures, and that I'm not totally sure who's calling what shots. So if we're talking the McLaren side, in theory, they would bridge both since they're involved with Aero in F1 and IndyCar. But it does does come across, I think clearly, that among all IndyCar sponsors, Aero might have the most active participation in the behavior, words, uh, actions of the team it sponsors than maybe any others we know of or hear about. Could there be other sponsors that have just as much say and are on the phone as much saying, hey, don't do this, don't say that, change this, get rid of this guy, hire that person? Could absolutely be the truth. We just don't know about it. We do know that from all we've heard, it sure does sound like Arrow. It's a pretty big, pretty big voice at the table. So that's a question. I just don't know who exactly is in charge from a what side, what faction. And on the team side, who's plugged into which faction and how. I mean, it sounds like a soap opera to me. As for the what 
benefit might Schmidt and Peterson get out of it? I got to admit, I'm not totally sure there either. Rick, as I understand it, has no, you know, <laughs> the money side is not something that's going to mean a whole lot to him. I underst- have always understood that he has been immensely successful. And if anything, there might be value in McLaren helping to spend money to therefore decrease his overall expenditure in the sport. I mean, that would just be smart, right? Wouldn't be because he was lacking or hurting for money, but hey, if I can do this, maybe even do it better, and we have a greater chance of winning, and I actually have to come out of pocket less, I mean, that sounds like a proposition most people would vote for. Sam, you know, we've always known that Sam is someone who likes his money. Sam's reputation is someone where if there is a dollar to get, he's going to go after it. That's well known. It's not a negative. Most highly successful people in life when it comes to finance tend to like money, to go after it, to try and get as much as they can. So there could be two different value systems being tickled here in terms of what McLaren brings slash Arrow brings. Um, might be all I have to offer. Two to go. I'm taking another sip. Hiroki 2. Thanks for always sending stuff in, by the way. If you can grade the offseason so far purely by where drivers have landed or haven't landed, what would you give it? Because obviously we have some very young but very good talent in the series, which is great. We also have some favorite drivers with great accomplishments not driving or driving now in other series. I don't know what to think of it. Huh. In terms of movement, how would we grade things? Yet again, super interesting question that never would have occurred to me. Let me just look here at the team's roster. That might help guide the answer a little bit. So we know Team Penske, no changes there. Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan, no changes there. McLaren, we know that they've joined. Get to the Arrow McLaren SP in a moment, but Hunkos, question mark. I know of one driver they're talking with, possibly. Uh, Harding Steinbrenner went away altogether as an independent entry, now merged with Andretti Autosport. Ed Carpenter racing with Scuderia Corsa. We believe the Scuderia Corsa part's going to go away. Um... The driver with Ed sharing his entry, we know that's going to be a change. Ed Jones won't be back. We know that the full-time entry that was Spencer Pickett's, that has changed. We haven't heard from Dragon Speed. I, I know that they intend to do a partial season again, but we'll have to see what that looks like. We know that the Dale Coin racing with Vassar Sullivan has changed. So that's a driver to be determined. The Dale Coyne Racing entry for Santino, we expect that to be the same. Chip Ganassi Racing, no changes. Carlin Racing, no clue what that could be. From there, Meyer Shank with Andretti. That is same driver but different team. Aero McLaren SP, that's a new partner in the team, new engine supplier, two new drivers. I did say there's no change at Ganassi. True in terms of keeping who they had, but they've obviously added 
Marcus Erickson. So apologies for that little brain fart. Andretti Autosport kept all their drivers from last year, added Colton Herta with this Hardingstein-Brenner program, and A.J. Foyt Enterprises. We expect two new drivers. Is Kanan still maybe in the frame for something? Maybe, but wasn't it two, three months ago where we were hearing about a handshake deal and it's going to happen? Ugh. I mean, we're about to celebrate Thanksgiving, friends, and there's no contract, nothing announced. If (laughs) in this post-contract era where uh, signed contracts, handshakes, verbal agreements, and everything else don't mean a damn thing, where do we rate the possibility of a verbal and or handshake or whatever you want to call it that was done between Tony and the team, the team saying, we're going to have you back? Well, man, that contract continues to not show up now. We're almost into December doesn't mean it couldn't happen, but it does mean that if they wanted it to happen, it would have happened already. I'm not sure how to answer the question, though, in terms of a grade. So would an A mean it's been an amazing offseason and an F mean it was horrible? Or would an A grade mean it's been crazy and I doubt we'll see anything crazier? And an F would mean oh, that was really boring, not much for who would land here and there and all the changes and whatnot. Uh, I'd have to go with that latter option. I'd say it's been an A. I'll go an A- minus for the insanity and changes and here, there, and people moving and whatnot. Because while I think there's nothing crazier that could happen, uh, I no longer feel confident in making that statement. It seems like there's new levels of just wacky tobacco getting rolled out here. So uh, I'll go A minus knowing that an A, even an A plus in theory could happen at the halfway point of the Indy 500. After 100 laps, all cars will pit and the Brickyard 400 will be held. <laughs> and then when it's over, IndyCar drivers will come back and finish their race. So it's the Speedway 900. I mean, I just pulled that out of my backside. I also know that there's a part of me that thinks, ah, if Roger Penske can buy the freaking Speedway and IndyCar, why couldn't this happen? There was no logical argument for the first thing to happen. We'll just forget logic because it seemingly doesn't apply. So I'm going to go with an A minus because it it's just been it's been crazy. But and potentially in potential and potentially, let me drink another sip so I could say maybe it's the beer talking. It's not, but that sounds better. I don't know. I think my level of worry. We're not at DefCon Five anymore about what am I going to wake up to tomorrow. But yeah. Uh, I realize this is my weekly IndyCar show. I will say that while it's not IndyCar, there are some things that I know of that are coming at the end of the 2020 IMSA season that worry me, worry me very much for the series health. Obviously, I'm not going to mention them because I haven't written about them because it'd be premature to do so, but I think we've gotten all the crazy stuff out of our system now for IndyCar. 
Would Charlie Kimball driving for A.J. Foyt be a total shock? No. Would one or two kids that have been racing in Europe trying to get to Formula One, with them landing at Coin and Carlin, surprise me at this point? No, not at all. Uh, could we have one of the most insane indie-only driver collections ever? Very possible. Could we have James Hinchcliffe, Tony Kanon, Sebastian Bourdais, Elio Castro Neves? I mean, heck, who else do we throw in there? Oriol Servia as well? We could have some real, <laughs> real ridiculous names where you go, they're showing up as ringers for the 500 for somebody? I mean, that pool's going to be pretty deep. But yeah, I'm more worried about some of the things that are. 10 months away, 11 months away news-wise in sports car land than I am IndyCar with all the stuff that we've gotten through. So I'll go with an A-. minus. Last question here from N. Burke. says, why doesn't some rich guy snatch up a couple of good drivers like Borde and Hinch while they're available? There's got to be somebody looking at getting into IndyCar and having some experienced drivers would really help a new team grow. I saved this for last. So I don't want to depress you all, but this is just, you know, this is maybe the, the reality comes crashing down episode of the listener Q and a, because there's just a lot of reality to deal with here. Um, and Burke, not sure if you've sent in questions before, I apologize for failing to register that this rich guy, you mentioned, we miss him. We love him. We miss him, though. And I wouldn't want to limit this to guys. Could be a gal, though we haven't really seen that, but would definitely say that if we're staring at 2020, the possibility of a wealthy man or woman doing, as you mentioned, someone wealthy, wanting to get into IndyCar, having a bunch of amazing drivers to possibly hire. Uh... We haven't seen him. We haven't seen her in a while. There have been new teams to come in, of course. But that wealthy buying cars and going to go hire some really good drivers and we're going to be here, right? I don't mean for a year or two. I mean coming in and here comes the money. I want to go kick everyone's ass because... I am a successful business person and I'm going to just apply my competitive juices from that world to IndyCar racing. Watch out. I haven't seen that person in a while. The last one to do it was Mike Harding. And in his first full season, 2018, by round four or five, was looking for a way out. Some extenuating circumstances in there. If you know about them, good on you. If you don't, I don't want to get into them now. The guy's, the guy has created some problem for, problems for himself in his personal life, and I don't feel the need to go through that whole scenario again. But he bought cars, bought everything, set up a shop, set up a team, did all these things. Huge, passionate fan of IndyCar successful family business, paving and whatnot. 
Recently sold it, by the way. Um, he came in, this exact model, and was terrified within a few months of that first full season with all the invoices coming in, saying, whoa, what? No, no, no. Granted, I've also heard that some of the salaries that he was paying, the numbers were like, wow, some folks got over on you pretty good. Regardless, there just aren't many of these people left, if any, (laughs) that I know of right now. Uh, That's the problem. The successful business person who loved IndyCar racing and wanted to get involved and did well enough in their business to be able to do it without having to run for the hills before they got to a half season. We used to have that. If you look throughout the seven, I mean, many years of IndyCar, but if you look throughout the 70s and 80s, in particular the 80s, where the high production numbers started to happen, where you had specialist constructors, March and Lola in particular, where you could call up and order an IndyCar, you know, seemingly off the shelf, and it gets sent to you, and you would buy a Cosworth engine. Chevy came along a little bit later, what, 86 or so, when uh, Penske funded Ilmore's foundation. It was a bit exclusive there uh, for many years. But regardless, you could call up Lola, call up March, purchase a car that you knew was going to be very competitive, buy an engine, and there were a number of engine builders that could make that Cosworth DFX scream, and you were on the grid was expensive, of course. This stuff's never been cheap, but it was not so expensive that, you know, I'll just say medium-level successful business people uh, were held out. I mean, seriously, if you had a good regional business, you know, you're Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. <laughs> if you had a successful roll-up door company, if you sold, if you sold a lot of veal, uh, you know, there are folks kind of at that level where they had a good business. They made good profits, but not. we're not talking this person's clearing $50 million a year, $100 million a year. Millionaires, for sure, but this was something that would not break the bank, and they could do and love. Those folks aren't here anymore, for the most part. It's just, it's no longer feasible because driving maybe the final nail on the whole conversation topic to buy a car, get an engine lease, get a tire lease. Between an engine lease and a tire lease, you're out to what? 2.2, 2.3 million dollars. I might be off by a couple hundred grand, but you're almost you're over 2 million dollars out of pocket for annual leases before you've got anything. <laughs> then you have to buy a car, then spares, if not two cars, transporter. You can lease some of these things. You got to buy others. Got to hire people. You got to hire a lot of people. The really good people, the folks that manage, organize, R and D, tech, whatever. They those aren't you know fifty thousand dollar a year people. Those are some serious dollars you're spending. Fly all over hell and back. Send the truck all over back and forth. Rental cars hotels, just on and on and on and on. This is something where no rich person 
by and large today would say, I'm going to get involved in IndyCar because the amount of money they would burn is just beyond the comfort zone of just about everybody. So that's what we're going to close on. We really hope for those of you who are men and women of faith, we really pray that Roger Penske looks at this thing he has purchased and is really thinking towards how do we make this healthier? How do we make sure that the Michael Shanks of the world, the Trevor Carlins of the world, are here for another 15, 20 years, as long as they want? Because there's no argument to make for them to go away. Because they can afford this. They can the sponsors, we can they can find enough sponsors to cover all the bills and make a profit. A reasonable profit, maybe nothing insane. But there's value here. It isn't so expensive that they can actually come and play and not feel like they're robbing their children from going to school and college. And they're having to rob their 401ks to do this. This is the thing we're facing among many others. Hopefully I didn't just make you sad as you head into or are currently enjoying or are enjoying some hair of the dog trying to recover from your Thanksgiving hangover. I'm not sure. Not sure where the congestion, congestion, wow, consumption of this podcast is going to fall in your week. But I hope you enjoyed it. Also know that I gave it as a preface for the part one of the listener Q&A. Not trying to polish this turd too much here. It's an unpolished turd. My mistakes, my missteps, my bad wordifications. Just keep it in. It's me. It's who I am. I'd be lying if I told you otherwise. So I hope you enjoyed it. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. And I look forward to speaking with you next week.